Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon and welcome to this special presentation of the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I extend a very warm welcome to all of you here in the audience and to the thousands of you who are joining us online for the live webcast of this session. The Voices in Leadership broadcasts are part of our school's uh, leadership education programs, and they offer an opportunity for students and faculty to hear from very high-profile leaders in a variety of health-related uh, areas and also to learn from their experiences as they reflect on their leadership experience and their own careers. These speakers are uh, candid about the decisions they have made along the way and they share the lessons that they have learned. Over the past five years, we have been fortunate to welcome ministers of health, leaders of international and non-governmental organizations, US officials, uh, members of different parliaments, and these broadcasts uh, are posted online after each event so people can view them at their convenience. I encourage you to visit our website uh, and, and you can view all of these uh, sessions. Um, I would like now to invite Dr. Atul Gawande to come up to the podium. Many of, new, of you know Atul as a staff writer for the New Yorker magazine where he has published very many, many very insightful health-related pieces and also as the author of uh, several best-selling books, including the recent Being Mortal, uh, which uh, tackles very fundamental issues around uh, the end of life. We're very proud that he's a professor at our Department of Health Policy and Management and that he is the founder and leader of Ariadne Labs, a joint venture with the Brigham and Women Hospital. So we're delighted um, that he could be here today and Atul will be introducing our very special guest for this afternoon. Well, I am delighted to get to welcome and be in discussion with Chelsea Clinton. Um, Chelsea Clinton is the vice chair of the Clinton Foundation, where she's been working alongside her parents, the President Bill Clinton and Secretary Hillary Rodham Clinton, to drive the vision and the work of the foundation. She has had a focus on certain goals, and those have been especially around improving global and domestic health, including with the Clinton Healthcare Access Initiative, the Alliance for, the healthier, for a Healthier Generation, the Clinton Health Matters Initiative, and a variety of other programs. She's had a lifelong interest in public health and in global issues. She has gotten her doctorate from Oxford in international relations. She got a master's in public health from Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health, where she's been also teaching graduate school courses um, around global health and governance. She has been exercising major leadership in um, a leadership role in areas that are very close to us at the Harvard School of Public Health. And I look forward to talking to her about that work she's been doing. First, however, she's gonna talk about the foundation's work to make a difference in the lives of the world's most vulnerable people. And following her remarks, we'll have a chance for a short discussion, including questions that students have submitted. And so now, my pleasure to welcome Chelsea Clinton. 
Well, uh, thank you, Atul. Uh, thank you, Dean, for welcoming me. Uh, thank you to Betty Johnson uh, for all of her uh, stewardship of this event uh, and ensuring that we all got here on time and in the right places. Um, thank you to everyone uh, at the School of Public Health and the broader Harvard community who's made this event possible today. Um, I also would like to uh, thank Dr. Nall for all of her work on behalf of cancer survivors here and around the world. And we were just talking about hopefully more work that we can do together through the Clinton Global Initiative um, this year and in years ahead. Um, I am particularly grateful uh, to be in conversation with a tool because he is something of a hero in my family. Um, as, as he may not be aware, uh, I think my father deserves some credit for his tremendous book sales that the dean talked about. Um, <laughs> although I know you have a more recent book out, uh, my father continues to hawk shamelessly the checklist manifesto. Um, it certainly required reading in my house, and I wouldn't be surprised uh, if here as well, and all of the chuckles, I think, validate uh, why it is so important that all of us think more about the systems uh, that we too often take for granted. Um, I want to spend most of the time uh, that we have today in conversation with a tool um, based on the questions that he would ask and, and those that you have submitted. But before we move to that conversation, I do want to talk a little bit about the work of the Clinton Health Access Initiative uh, and the Clinton Foundation in global health and in health here at home in the United States. Um, in 2002, when my father left the White House, he knew uh, that he, or in 2001 when he left, um, by 2002, he knew that he wanted to do something around HIV AIDS, but he didn't know sort of what that something would be. He didn't know how he would be uniquely positioned, um, given the work that he had done um, as president, given the people that he knew, given his, I think, remarkable ability to distill a challenge, to understand kind of when a system needs to be fixed or when a system needs to be better defined and created, uh, how to apply all of that to the challenge of AIDS. 2002 seems like many eons ago now. Um, the Global Fund had just opened its doors. Uh, PEPFAR wasn't even yet a twinkle in President Bush's eyes. Um, there were only 200,000 people in the developing world on ARV treatment. The vast majority of those lived in Thailand and Brazil countries that could afford to have their own generic manufacturers of ARVs and in which the countries had sufficient resources to either subsidize or outright purchase ARVs for their HIV-positive citizens. And so this was the environment in which my father traveled with Nelson Mandela to the Barcelona International AIDS Conference in 2002. He was determined to do something. He didn't quite know kind of what would be most impactful. The world was starting to pay attention. More resources were being marshaled. Um, but not yet to real effect in too many people's lives around the world. And while at the AIDS conference, he was approached by Dr. Denzel Douglas, who then was the Prime Minister of St. Kent's Nevis in the Caribbean. As Dr. Douglas explained to my father, um, St. Kent's and Nevis didn't have a real challenge that was an impediment to accessing treatment and care for so many people around the world. It didn't have a stigma problem but it did have a significant money problem and a systems problem. And so we asked for my father's help to better negotiate with the generic drug manufacturers, at least in Brazil, just over the Caribbean to the south, um, for not only St. Kitts and Nevis, but for the Caribbean writ large. Because even the Bahamas, the wealthiest nation, relatively speaking, in the Caribbean, wasn't able to provide drugs for its HIV-positive population. 
And my father thought, yes, I can figure out how to do this. And so that was the genesis for the Clinton Health Access Initiative, and really for the market shaping work that has driven much of the Clinton Foundation's work around the world, not only in health, but in agriculture, in combating climate change, and fighting childhood obesity here at home. So in 2002, when the average ARV price was upwards of $10,000, uh, the Clinton Health Access Initiative, as a nascent entity, began to negotiate with multiple parts of the system, and for the first time really defining a system, recognizing that kind of the challenge of what had been characterized as a high price, low volume market shouldn't have to persist as such given the resources coming online from the Global Fund, the tragedy of the increasingly recognized AIDS challenge around the world. And so today, as I know many of you are aware, the average cost of antiretroviral treatment per person per year is between one and $200. In some countries, it's even less. And of the more than 10 million people that are on treatment in the developing world, 8.2 million of them access treatment through more than 70 agreements that the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton Health Access Initiative helped to negotiate. Now, more than 4 million of those acquire treatment through PEPFAR dollars. So that makes me proud not just as a daughter, but also as an American taxpayer. Um, you laugh, but I mean that quite sincerely. Now, I think it says something about our values as a country that we continue to make access to treatment a national priority. That market shaping work, Chai then translated into helping negotiate a more than 50% decrease in the price of the pentavalence vaccine, massively expanding the purchasing power of Gavi, UNICEF, and others, a more than 40% price reduction in injectable, long-lasting, reversible contraceptives, ensuring that more women have more agency over the choices that we make for ourselves and our families around the world. And that paradigm then got translated through the Alliance for Healthier Generation, which Atul mentioned, the partnership between the Clinton Foundation and the American Heart Association, the genesis of which was my father's own heart scare. That's the euphemism that we use in my family for his almost cataclysmic likely to have been fatal heart attack that thankfully was prevented when he did the right thing, had chest pains, called his doctor, and had a quadruple bypass surgery at the end of 2004. At the beginning of 2005, he called the American Heart Association. He said, well, what can I do? He said, we've been doing this work around AIDS across the world. Do you, do you think any of that would have utility here if we thought about kind of heart health? You, can we help drive down the price for treatment? Could I be the poster boy for prevention? Like, what can I do? And the American Heart Association said, sure, all of that would be great, but what we really need your help on is combating childhood obesity. And while there's a lot of awareness now that childhood obesity is a significant challenge in our country, that wasn't as well syndicated or socialized at the beginning of 2005 when my father began working on childhood obesity. And he took the same principles that had helped to animate Chai's work and applied them to the Alliance's work working to build consortiums of school districts to better effectively purchase healthier options for school lunches, working with beverage manufacturers to ensure that they could still ship the same quantity at the same price of beverages to schools to sell in vending machines, but moving away from full calorie sodas to waters and to flavored waters, doing things that individually may not have such an impact, but collectively coalescing, again, thinking about 
sort of the food system in which kids live and work and play and go to school as a way in which to really combat and ameliorate the childhood obesity challenge. And increasingly, this is recognized as not just a challenge for those of us who care about public health, but for Americans who care about any concern that's facing our country. In 2013, the Joint Chiefs of Staff declared childhood obesity a national security crisis. In 2014, the New York City Fire Department and Police Department acknowledged that they were unable to recruit sufficient numbers of new officers because too many were failing the physical fitness exams. The National Council of Economic Advisors has said that childhood obesity poses the risk of an economic tsunami, almost irregardless of what nets out in the various concerns around our healthcare system reform. And so thankfully, that's given real momentum and agency to this work, because ultimately, and I think Atul and I will talk about kind of how we assess success at the foundation or in our family, we're always trying to work ourselves out of a job. And so because increasingly childhood obesity is recognized as not just a moral imperative that we need to correct, but a security and economic imperative, school districts increasingly are able to find their own funds to better purchase food. Increasingly, the Defense Department is giving resources to schools that are on or near military bases so that they can do the same. Increasingly, other foundations locally, whether it's in Miami or Little Rock or Northern California, are helping to support school districts to do similar work. And so that means that we're able to take that work and do it elsewhere. That, to us, is ultimately what success looks like. When the governments that we help negotiate with the generic drug manufacturers no longer need us to help negotiate the next generation of drug agreements. Of the more than 70 countries that we helped originate their negotiations, more than 40 have now done the second and third negotiations on their own. That to us is real success. When there's a transfer of skills, wherewithal, and systematic understanding such that in the best sense, we're no longer needed. And so I hope that we can talk more about our work in public health around the world or our work with school districts and more broadly here in the United States, including the newest unlikely partner with the Alliance for Healthier Generation, McDonald's. Um, you laugh, but a majority of American kids, this is true, eat at least one meal a month in a McDonald's. So if we're gonna solve the childhood obesity challenge in our country, we truly have to continue to go to where kids eat. And McDonald's committed at the Clinton Global Initiative meeting in 2014 to move away from French fries and Happy Meals towards fruit or vegetables, to no longer include sodas in Happy Meals, but instead include milk or water or in some markets, fruit juices. They've almost entirely made good on that commitment here in the United States, and it's one that they're working on achieving around the world, because sadly, childhood obesity is no longer just an American challenge. So hopefully we can talk a little bit about how we think of success, um, how we think of needing to engage often unlikely but necessary partners in tackling any public health challenge or other challenge where we believe we are uniquely positioned to make a difference, and also how we think about saying no. Uh, because for those of us that care so much um, about public health, I think so often we think we have to say yes, but sometimes the smartest thing we can do is to say no to the first option so that we better can say yes 
to the second option where we're more well positioned and equipped to make a difference. So thank you for welcoming me. Thank you for being interested in the work of the Clinton Health Access Initiative and the Clinton Foundation. And I look forward to talking to Atul, I guess, about kind of whatever he wants to talk about, although I've <laughs> kind of put a few mental markers in that I hope he will um, permit. So thank you all very much. That was great, and I think what was great about it is it gives a, a picture for people of just how deeply embedded you are in leadership in um, global health and public health in the United States. Um, you have, um, uh, well, I read a profile of you and uh, a bunch of profiles, and I think the most interesting thing that was said was um, that of the three Clintons, you are the one who is most hands-on at the foundation. and. Um, it described your direction as more data and outcome driven, arising from some of what you were hinting at, you know, the desire to try to prioritize and to have clarity about metrics of outcomes. Very comforting for a public health community here <laughs> that likes to think about the cost effectiveness of what we're doing and, and push in that direction. So if the key struggle is prioritization, do you want to influence that at the foundation? How? Um, you know, what are the levers that a young leader has walking into um, a big foundation? Um, well, thank you, Atul. I think there were lots of questions there, and I'll try to answer them um, in, in a way that, that makes sense in an overall arc. Um, and I'll do that in a, in a couple of ways. I think uh, that the fact that the foundation has been successful in some of the ways that I outlined actually uh, increases the burden on us to kind of continue to prove uh, the validity of our model, but also to syndicate the validity of our model. You know, I think that it is now terrific um, that we take for granted that there are lots of market discontinuities that remain low-hanging fruit in various health commodities around the world. There's lots of work that's happening, for example, now um, on various uh, testing economics. You're trying to change not only kind of HIV or rapid infant diagnostic testing economics, but increasingly to change the economics around uh, malaria and tuberculosis testing and otherwise, you know, we are engaged in some of that work, but most of that work we are not engaged in. And I think that that is, is terrific. Um, and so part of what I've done at the foundation is to try to help us be more open source, to try to be more transparent with our partners, whether our funding partners or our programmatic partners, kind of whether that's through the Clinton Health Access Initiative or through the Alliance for Healthier Generation or otherwise, um, with kind of what we've done that we really think has worked kind of at a very granular and practical level so that others can learn more quickly um, from our successes and also our stumbles. Um, and then I think we have an obligation to think about um, logical extensions of our work that may not be immediately apparent. So again, thinking about the alliance, um, I'm deeply passionate, and I talked about this actually when I was here uh, in 2013, uh, the juvenile justice system. Uh, there are 53 some odd thousand young men and women who every night uh, sleep in a juvenile justice facility in the United States. Um, disproportionately, they are young men of color. Uh, disproportionately, they have significant health challenges. Um, they are, depending on the state, at least as likely, if not more likely, to be struggling with obesity than the non-juvenile population. And because we've seen real success in the districts where we do a lot of deep work, on childhood obesity, where at least 
the childhood obesity rates have plateaued if they aren't yet declining, but again, to data, we have to sort of stop the, the upward trajectory before we can reverse it. Um, I really believe that we had a moral imperative to try to translate the work of the Alliance into the juvenile justice system. And so a couple of years ago, we started working with California and Arkansas, um, similarly through a sort of hands-on technical assistance paradigm, helping the facilities and the systems uh, be smarter purchases of food, helping figure out how, ways to get physical activity um, back into the juvenile justice systems in a way that the systems would feel comfortable but would really be kind of authentically useful for the young men and women uh, living in those facilities. Uh, and we partnered with Emory as our evaluative partner. And the pilots of those programs um, showed what we hoped would show, an increase in health literacy, um, an increase in the kind of confidence of the young men and women in the facilities to feel like they knew how to make healthier choices for themselves, at least in terms of diet and exercise. And then one hopes that those healthier choices help ladder up to other healthier choices. Uh, in their lives, and we're looking to extend those programs across the country. So that's a little bit how we think of um, success in sort of a macro sense, and also how we think of kind of what our next step responsibilities are to extend the programs that we believe are working. Well, so I hear embedded in what you're saying, um, you know, the, the Clinton Foundation, the, global, uh, the Clinton Global Initiative in particular is kind of famous for its pledges, and I hear you saying also we want to be famous for our outcomes and the successful outcomes. And you're describing some pretty sharp metrics, not easy to hit, that, that are going into that, that you're, sounds like you're pushing towards. As you prioritize what the foundation tackles and what it does not tackle, how do you use either data or is it your gut as a family about what you want to go towards? You know, prison work or heart disease in the personal case of the president's. Um, what drives that set of decisions about what you will do and what you won't do? Um, it's a great question. It's one that I think about obsessively. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do. I think about it obsessively. Um, and you know, we, we always try to start from kind of where are we disproportionately at least likely to be able to have a positive impact, either because of market shaping work that we've done already or because of our kind of school-based network or because of work that... Um, my father or mother may have done historically. Um, and if someone asks us to do something, because I think another important point uh, to make is that we only work um, at the invitation of, of national or local governments or whatever the pre-existing institution is. So for example, uh, for CHAI, we only work at the invitation of national governments. For the Alliance for Healthier Generation, we only work through the school districts. So we're now... Um, in hundreds of school districts across the country, we work with more than uh, 16 and a half kind of million kids' lives every day through the you know, 27,832 last checked schools. Um, but all of those school districts have asked us to help enhance their health and wellness um, position. And so when we think about kind of what more we can do and what we say yes to, we, we start with sort of where we are. And so an example, thinking about uh, Dr. Nall, is we were asked a few years ago through the Clinton Health Access Initiative um, to help a country where we've done a lot of work on, um, on AIDS and tuberculosis in particular uh, to help uh, design their cervical cancer program. But we didn't know anything about cervical cancer. And we didn't know anything about the sort of kind of primary, secondary, and tertiary care systems that um, were in place around cancer already in that country or kind of would need to be in place and how to get from 
A to B? And so we said no. Um, we made suggestions of other um, partners that we thought were more well-equipped to help that country kind of transition um, to the vision that it was just starting to define. Um, and I think that was the right choice for us. So you know, having a disproportionate likelihood to say yes or even to affirmatively go out and do things that are kind of you know, extensions from a technical standpoint or a programmatic standpoint from work we're doing already or where we have previous experience um, and, and to be very judicious about saying no, even when partners that we have deep and productive working relationships with ask us to do something that we don't think we're the best to do. One of the questions came from the students. Um, of the knowledge you gained from your master's in public health, what was the most important for your future career? Statistics. <laughs> <laughs> Because? Um, well, I think it cycles back to uh, my obsession with data. I had uh, I'd done a lot of work in economics, um, and I was really comfortable kind of with economics. Um, you're still laughing, but I think that means that a lot of you agree with me secretly, even if you are not as comfortable being as obviously nerd-like. Um, you can program in Stata? Yeah, I, I love Stata. <laughs> um, and, and Access and all sorts of other um, programs, and I think that's actually been really useful for me because it enables me to um, absorb information more quickly uh, from kind of more sources. It enables me to kind of mentally uh, sift through it and, and catalog it. Um, and I think that you know, in, a, in a world in which there are so many demands on all of our times, and now that I'm a mother and I'm always trying to be even more efficient, um, in my work to maximize my time with our daughter, Charlotte. Um, I, I just am so grateful to all of my kind of biostats and the additional um, statistics uh, that I, I took at Mailman. Your PhD and now your course at Mailman that you're teaching on global health is about global health and governance. So what I'm wondering is, what do you think is the key thing people don't understand about the link between global health and governance, and especially what um, what does it mean that governance connects to global health and global health outcomes to you? Goodness, well again, I think lots of questions. I think um, you know, one of the challenges uh, is that so often we uh, focus only on what's in, in front of us. I think that's inevitable kind of for all of us. And so you know, understanding kind of the ways in which the world works, sort of that I, mean, I would argue what has happened over the last year with Ebola was not inevitable kind of in a kind of philosophical uh, or theoretical sense, but it almost was inevitable given the system in which it happened. Kind of given the current state of, kind of global health governance as it is um, kind of currently constituted kind of from the WHO at a kind of global and regional and national level, kind of given the fact that we continue to be more responsive um, than uh, prescriptive in how we kind of think about fragile state health environments. And so for me, when I kind of think about or teach about kind of global health governance, it's understanding um, the cascade of events in which um, kind of any kind of one narrative occurs, whether it's kind of Ebola or the uh, case of AIDS, um, and you're trying to not uh, take for granted uh, how important uh, inertia is kind of in those narratives, kind of given the state of uh, the institutions uh, from a formal multilateral standpoint, but also kind of from a uh, donor standpoint, 
kind of developing country standpoint, a kind of foundation standpoint. Um, and, and yet then thinking kind of, well, what is the ideal and how do we get from here to there in a practical political sense? Well, I'll give you an example that I feel like I struggle with all the time. We have a number of teams here at the school who are involved in trying to improve maternal and child health. And a recent study showing that, you know, when you measure what matters, it's things like do they have um, enough uh, access to facilities for delivery? Do you have the right medications? Do you have um, the right personnel? All those kinds of things. But the, the strongest predictor that you would have any of those things is corruption. And um, how to tackle and what to even do about places where there's deep corruption and you know, your choices are, well, we, we don't work in those, we, should we not work in those environments? If we're gonna work in those environments, how do you engage in corrupt governments? Um, so have you started to have some sense of what you do and don't do to even move the ball forward in a space yeah. like that? And, and also recognizing how kind of what happens you know, here in the United States also impacts kind of the ways in which organizations or even kind of individuals are able to to work in areas across the world. So as a practical example, um, you know, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act here in the United States historically has not been applied to um, foundations, to NGOs, to um, even kind of domestic funding of UN agencies that uh, work in often imperfect environments. Um, but there are various states' attorney generals. There have been people who have advocated um, for, you know, still serving Attorney General Holder, um, that the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act be extended to NGOs, foundations, um, to not only those of us that engage in sort of direct service work, but you know, also theoretically the Gates Foundation, which is the behemoth funder in, in global health around the world, um, which would completely change this argument, because right now, um, the values-based conversation is, you know, am I comfortable um, being in a situation where I might be, you know, perpetuating kind of a long-term uh, dysfunction, kind of to facilitate sort of short-term gains that you can justify thinking, well, if they're healthier people, they'll grow up hopefully to be healthier voters, and maybe, you know, in the next generation, they're going to vote out the kind of, in, you know, those who've been engaged in the endemic corruption. That entirely shifts if the legal burden on whether it's the Clinton Health Access Initiative um, or the Gates Foundation or kind of smaller NGOs just dedicated to helping, you know, protect and advance maternal health, whether it's in kind of Cambodia or Costa Rica, are going to be examined through the lens of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, um, in which if you have any knowledge of any corruption in any place that you are doing business, um, your assets are frozen and you're unable to do your work. Right? That, is a, that is a fundamental governance question. And I would argue it's one that for those of us that care about global health, we should be engaged in those debates at the state and the national level. Um, because often, I think those of us that think about public health don't realize how kind of political or legal conversations happening that ostensibly are quite disconnected from what we do can have real implications um, for if we're even able to do the work that so many of us feel called to do. That's not an idea I'd heard. It'd be um, really radical even to use the convening power of the, of the Clinton Foundation to bring people um, and NGOs around. What are we really doing about corruption? It's, I think, a fascinating indication of where you're potentially able to push things in your leadership role. One area that you have really embraced recently is about the role of girls and women 
and their status around the world. And you're applying this very outcome-driven notion to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about this campaign you're launching? Um, so I'm deeply passionate about everything around girls and women. And I didn't know that I could be more passionate about this until I became a mother and until I had a daughter. Um, it's some, I heard, huh, yes, I think that also is something that clearly has resonance. Um, and you, in 1995, when my mom went to the Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing and declared that women's rights are human rights and human rights are women's rights, something that shouldn't have been incendiary, but at the time um, was actually censored on Chinese television, um, so clearly was deeply threatening, uh, at least in the place where she was speaking, um, and was certainly not uh, taken for granted as a principle, much less as a kind of m motivating um, kind of design force in how we think about um, development programming and aid. Um, she really uh, began her advocacy on behalf of, of women and girls, whether in maternal health or enabling women to equally participate in the workforce around the world. And kind of that thread of her life, again, thinking about where are we disproportionately able to make a difference, kind of for whatever reason, um, kind of led my mother and me when she decided to join the Clinton Foundation to really think about, well, kind of what can we do to um, continue to advance uh, what at times can feel a Sisyphean task, but one that we believe is not only kind of morally the right thing to do, but strategically and economically the smart thing for us to do to ensure the full and equal participation for women and girls. We realized again, to Atul's point, around convening power that we could likely convene unlikely partners. Um, and so we believe the No Ceilings Report that we launched a few weeks ago is the most comprehensive data set ever around the status um, for rights and participation for women and girls around the world, partly because we worked with traditional data partners, I'm sure data sets that many of you are familiar with, kind of from the World Bank, um, various UN agencies, uh, but also less traditional data partners like Facebook, whose Facebook has the largest female population in the world, more than 700 million active female users on Facebook. Um, so trying to understand the ways in which women are using technology to sometimes circumvent or ameliorate the ceilings that they still face in their own lives. Um, and then putting all of it online in an open source, searchable, kind of easily usable, downloadable, you can download it into Stata, as well as Excel and other kind of formats, um, because we hope that kind of it will have validity and utility to kind of people you know, sitting in this room, but also to kind of young people around the world um, to try to help better articulate kind of what they want to see and kind of to better make the case to see that for women and girls. And I think that's true here in the United States. I mean, one thing um, that I kind of, again, just to say to a belaborsome extent, because it continues to surprise every um, kind of meeting I'm in or every fora in which I'm speaking, um, is that the United States is one of only nine countries in the world to not have paid maternity leave for mothers of infants, right? It's surprising to, I think, many of you uh, and um, if it's surprising to many of you who clearly have a public health bias or otherwise we wouldn't all be in this room together, kind of imagine how surprising it is to people who don't have a public health kind of bias or vocational calling. Um, and the company that the United States is in uh, is Suriname and then largely uh, South Pacific small island nation states, you know, countries that have significantly fewer resources um, than we have here. And, and to me that's a real value judgment that we continue to make as a country, that we continue to not invest in ensuring that mothers have those crucial 
kind of early moments and even months um, to feed and to bond uh, with their children. And so for my mother and for me, the no ceilings work, you know, hopefully helps not only kind of assess where we are, um, but illuminate kind of where we need to go because of what progress has been made. You know, in 1995, the United States wasn't one of nine. It was one of literally dozens. So the world has moved beyond us, and I think that um, we need to make the right choice for our future to catch up. Do, do you have another example of a measure that you feel is moving or that is movable that brings a concrete sense of what status improvement really means? Well, I think um, another uh, one that I think generally people find surprising where we haven't improved uh, on a global level is a workforce participa <coughs> excuse me, workforce participation. So in 1995, 55% of um, women over the age of 16 were either in school or working. In 2013, 55% of women around the world, 16 or older, were either in school or working. And in the United States, it's not much better. It's just shy of 58%. And you know, this is actually fundamentally a systems question. Right? I mean, how do we ensure that um, we shift expectations around what is acceptable for women? How do we ensure that kind of policies in the United States um, where kind of a lack of paid maternity leave is one of the last barriers kind of is overcome, but also there are more than 100 countries around the world where there still is legalized uh, discrimination against women in the workforce, where women can be denied jobs or um, it's legal to pay women less. Um, there are a number of countries where there's still restrictions on women's movement, um, a number of countries where there's restrictions on whether a woman can open a bank account or get a loan without having a male family member co-sign. Um, so we have a pretty clear sense now in a way that we didn't 20 years ago of what the barriers are. And we have a lot of data about what happens when those barriers are removed. Um, but we are so far from being where we need to go. And so you know, at the Clinton Foundation, um, and particularly through CGI, using our convening power, trying to convene um, real conversations that hopefully have a lot of, kind of attendant peer pressure to help, um, whether it's governments move to where it's clearly in their best interest to move, or kind of getting foundations and others to continue to dedicate resources to often sort of unsexy subjects, or sometimes politically sensitive subjects, um, to help amplify uh, the public pressure kind of within countries um, to help ensure that every, every girl um, can grow up and be whatever she wants to be. The students had a lot of questions directed towards the idea of how a young person can lead, and you have been trying to do that. Um, how do you think a young person leads an older generation where they may not want to go, especially when a couple of them might be your parents? <laughs> you know, how do you, um, how do you exert leadership within a foundation that's been so defined by your parents? And, and what do you think the lessons are for young people about being able to do that, because in some way we're all defined by the older generation. Yeah, completely. I think, well, I'll answer the question first about my family, um, and then answer the broader question about, about the foundation, um, because I think they're, they're different, but you asked them both, and I'm happy to talk about each. Um, you know, within my family, I'm really grateful that we have had um, kind of a conversation about what we think um, the challenges, the opportunities, the solutions are. Uh, whether today or in the future, literally my whole life. I mean, the first thing I learned to read was the newspaper. 
Um, one of my earliest memories, truly, is during the 1986 gubernatorial election, um, in which my father was running against a man named Frank White, um, who represented the darkest part of Arkansas's past. He was an unapologetic segregationist. Um, he was just determined to kind of drag Arkansas back to the dark days. Um, and he was my father's Republican opponent for uh, re-election when my father was running in 1986. And I guess the benefit of having three family members is that you have kind of two candidates and a moderator like built into the <laughs> breakfast table or the dinner table. And so we would have these uh, kind of fierce debates in which um, my parents would um, kind of force or empower me, depending on your perspective, um, to play my father, to play Frank White, and to play the moderator. And I think that was hugely useful training, not only um, for my debating skills like later in life, um, but also uh, for being comfortable talking to my parents on an equal level. Um, and that they always treated me uh, with the expectation of having my own opinion. And I think that was a gift they gave me that I didn't quite understand how profound that was until I became a mother, realizing that they didn't only listen to me, they expected me to have a point of view, they expected me to have the data and the evidence to defend that point of view, um, and they expected me to be able to do that you know, in under 60 seconds in the debate <laughs> format. Um, so I think that that, that has, has enabled me to um, kind of be comfortable um, when I've historically, and this is in the public domain, disagreed with my parents about big issues, um, like gay marriage a number of years ago until they kind of came to a place where they support equal marriage rights in our country, um, and to things even kind of within the foundation, which are often questions of prioritization, not so much sort of what we should be doing, but maybe what we should be doing first, um, or kind of how we should be organizing ourselves to do something. So that's sort of the family-based answer. So I guess the takeaway is that I will be kind of forcing Charlotte to have lots of debates as soon as she's able to talk. Um, and then at the foundation, I think you know it's a, it's a few things. I have a great amount of respect for all that my father has done that had nothing to do with my mother and me, that he really kind of was the genesis of and kind of continues to be the driving force for, and have lots of humility and respect for the people who have helped him do that work and continue to help him do that work. And there are parts of the foundation um, and the Clinton Health Access Initiative that still very much are his ballywick, um, where my mother and I are much more in a supportive posture. Um, in the same way, there are parts of the foundation that my mother and I lead or that I have more um, kind of leadership in and she has more leadership in, respectively. And so I think that is a healthy ecosystem. We talk about everything. We kind of develop priorities at a macro level. Um, but there's also very clear areas where kind of one of us is more of not just the public face, but really kind of the driving day-to-day -day, uh, animation of the work. As she's contemplating running for president, it's bringing a lot more scrutiny to the Clinton Foundation. How do you keep the foundation and yourself effective going into this, you know, chaotic future that um, is coming? Um, well, that, that's, you're, you're presuming a chaotic future, a tool. <laughs> um, I, I don't know, I, I, I can't comment on the future or the chaos part. Right. I can certainly um, <laughs> kind of hope that it will be less chaotic, um, but expect that it will be quite chaotic. Um, I think we just continue to do our work. 
I mean, I realize that may sound like a Girl Scout answer, but I really believe that. I mean, I believe that if we continue to do our work, if we continue to have real results, um, we will continue to be able to work with the partners that we have had such productive impact with so far, whether on the kind of government side, whether on the local community school district side, kind of whether on the funding side, whether on the evaluative partner side. I think we can continue to do our work and we can continue to prove our results. We'll be able to continue to do our work. Well, you, you've been incredibly impressive and forthright um, about what you think and what you're doing. I think um, I'll ask my last question, um, which is, we've had a chance to talk about a wide variety of things. What do you think for the students are the two to three key takeaways you might mention about leadership? I think one, it's important to um, have a really honest assessment about what each of us are good at and not good at. Um, I think it's important to have a real honest assessment about what we are most passionate about or most angry about. Um, I think kind of anger in interpersonal relationships is not very useful. I think anger is a motivating force about kind of injustice in the world is incredibly useful to help us figure out kind of what each of us want to focus on. Um, and I think being comfortable kind of asking for feedback from those uh, around us who we really respect in terms of kind of what they've already done, either in advance of us or alongside us. Um, because I think we are either always growing or we really are kind of falling flat. And Catherine the Great said that, you know, states and people are the same. Either we're growing or we're, we're rotting. I don't think we're quite rotting. I think that's, yeah, the dean is laughing. That's a bit extreme. Um, but I do think each of us wants to continue to be more efficient and effective. Um, and I think that we get there by continuing to have a clear sense of what we're good at and not, kind of what we're passionate about and not, um, and kind of drawing on our cohort or our mentors to help us define each of those in a way that kind of drives us forward. Well, just over a year ago, we had our um, 100th anniversary, and you um, were the recipient of our Next Generation Award, and I can see exactly why. Thank you, Chelsea, for this and creating such a significant impact. Thank you very much. We'll ask you to stay with us. Uh, stay tuned for the Next Generation Award presentation um, for the successor to Chelsea. <laughs> Thank you, Atul. Thank you, Chelsea, for this fascinating conversation. Uh, I think you've illuminated the way uh, people can work together and have that unique combination that Chelsea was talking about at the end of uh, introspection, uh, passion and commitment, and, and even that channeling of anger for all of those things that we feel uh, we cannot tolerate in the world. Uh, as Atul mentioned, um, you got a great example of why Chelsea Clinton was the recipient of the first Next Generation Award. Uh, this award was instituted last year last academic year when we were celebrating our uh, first hundredth uh, years of life as, as, uh, as the School of Public Health. And the idea was that along with centennial medals that were given to uh, President Bill Clinton, alumna Gro Harlan Brundtland, and former alumnus and faculty member Jim Kim, we wanted also to look forward to the next hundred years and therefore institute an award 
that would identify uh, outstanding leaders under the age of 40 who have already um, sh uh, uh, shown a light on the world, a positive light, for the commitment uh, to health as a fundamental human right and a commitment to achieving health for all around the world. Uh, so you who are here to attend that memorable uh, celebration in October of 2013 um, will remember Chelsea's passionate words back then. Uh, and it, it really um, made me realize what a great idea <laughs> this Next Generation Award was and, and the notion that we should continue that because it is this generation and the generations to come who will be here for our second and third uh, centennials. So we are truly delighted uh, that Chelsea is here with us uh, and we've asked her to present the next Next Generation Award um, to a very inspir inspirational and distinguished individual. And uh, I am delighted um, that uh, Blake Mykoski has uh, accepted to receive this award. Uh, Blake is the founder and chief, chief shoe giver, that's his official title, of uh, Tom's. Uh, he's also the creator of One for One, which is um, really an innovative, uh, transformative business model um, to help a person in need for every product that gets purchased. So please join me first in watching a very brief video highlighting Blake's accomplishments. Thanks to Blake Mykoski, a simple idea has grown into a global movement. And with that idea, the company he founded, Tom Shoes, has provided over 35 million pairs of shoes to children since 2006. As if that were not enough, Tom's eyewear has restored sight to over 275,000 people by providing prescription glasses, sight-saving surgery, and medical treatment. Tom's roasting company has helped provide more than 100,000 weeks of safe water in seven countries since 2014. And now, Tom's bag collection is funding training for skilled birth attendants and distributing birth kits to help women safely deliver their babies. Tom's has had such an impressive impact thanks to the one-for-one -one business model Blake has created. That model ensures that a person in need is helped with every product purchased. The Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health is honored to present its 2015 Next Generation Award to Blake Mykoski for his leadership and commitment to improving lives by providing shoes, sight, water, and safer birthing services to people in need, from Nepal to Kentucky. Chelsea, will you step up to the podium to present the award to Blake? Thank you, Dean. If it were not quite so cold, um, I would be wearing my Tom shoes. Um, so I just have to say that I will make that up to Blake when it gets a little bit warmer, um, because spring at some point has to finally arrive. Um, I think there are so many remarkable things about what Blake has created, um, some of what you saw in the video. Um, but arguably uh, equally remarkable is how now so many of us take for granted that this is a viable business model that the one-for-one one model that Blake pioneered um, is a viable approach to achieving social good and to having a real impact in the world. Um, and 
if you know, imitation is the greatest form of flattery, then Blake is flattered many times over. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are thinking about kind of your own ideas under this one-for-one aegis. Um, I couldn't really imagine the world without Tom's shoes, partly because of all the work that you saw highlighted in the video, but also partly because of what a remarkable partner Blake and Tom's has been with the Clinton Foundation. Um, when my father asked Blake if he would um, open a shoe factory in Haiti, um, he just said yes. I don't know if he kind of realized he could have said no. He could have said no. My father still would have been equally kind of an enthusiast and fan of Blake and Tom's, but thankfully um, Blake said yes. And, you know, a place that kind of is deeply kind of connected to uh, my family's heart. My parents took their uh, honeymoon in Haiti um, and where my father has been working to improve good governance to help remedy so much of kind of what Atul talked about kind of at the institutional level in Haiti. Um, clearly having a vibrant economy is part of ensuring that Haiti is on a path to success and Tom has kind of been part of that solution I know only will be even more so in the time ahead. Um, and when my mother and I asked Blake if he would partner with us on our work around saving Africa's elephants um, because at current rates of poaching, um, the African elephant will disappear in a little bit more than a decade. Um, Blake and his wife Heather uh, said absolutely, and we've been thrilled by the results of that effort which have provided vitally crucial funds to the Wildlife Conservation Society's um, African elephant preservation efforts across the continent. Um, again, an issue that may seem sort of disconnected um, from health and development, but actually is intimately connected to both because of the groups that are now engaged in poaching across the continent, such as Al-Shabaab and Boko Haram. And so Tom's Shoes is not only kind of at the forefront of ensuring that more people have the ability to walk to school or to play, kind of that more mothers have the confidence to deliver their children in a safe and healthy manner, um, but also helping to change the shape of the Haitian economy to help protect the African elephant. And I have no doubt doing so much more that so many of us will never even hear of. Um, so please join me in congratulating Blake on his Next Generation Award. Um, thank you, Chelsea. Thank you, Dean. Uh, thank you, everyone, for having me here. It's, it's, it's a little bit surreal to be standing in front of uh, a group of people who are committed their lives to public health uh, and improving it because, you know, that journey really started with me uh, just nine years ago. And when the journey started, I didn't really even know uh, that the journey was beginning. When I, when I was down in Argentina, 
nine years ago, I was there on vacation, and I happened to be noticing that there were many children uh, running around without shoes and, and on streets and in environments where there was glass and, and stones and different things that could hurt their feet. And I didn't think much about it. Um, but throughout my vacation, towards the end of it, um, I happened to have a chance meeting with a few women in a, in a cafe uh, that were doing volunteer work in Argentina. And they specifically were doing something they were calling a shoe drive. And when I asked them about what the shoe drive was all about, they explained to me that just two hours outside of Buenos Aires, this wonderful city, uh, there were children barefoot, which I'd already seen. But specifically, these children were not being able to go to school because in their town, uh, there was a school uniform requirement. And the uniform required a pair of shoes, a pair of closed toe shoes. Many of these kids had flip-flops, but that would not do um, for the case of getting them to school. And so these women had taken it upon themselves and worked with a local uh, nonprofit in Argentina to go around and collect uh, slightly used shoes from wealthy families in Buenos Aires to give to these children. And I was just so you know, uh, blown away by the initiative these women had taken. Uh, and I you know, was asking a bunch of questions. And throughout the conversation, they said to me, they said, well, look, we're going in a couple days. Uh, if you would like to come with us, you're more than happy. And so I said, great. And at this point in my life, I had I'd never done anything like this. My family had been charitable. Um, you know, I'd seen that growing up, but I'd never been uh, in the field or on the ground uh, watching aid like this being provided. And so I really didn't know what to expect. Um, but when we went into this village in Los Pelotones a couple days later, and we showed up with a, a U-Haul full of shoes, um, I saw these kids and these families so incredibly excited. I mean, you would have thought it was Christmas Day uh, and we were Santa Claus. I mean, these kids were, were, were running around, tr putting their new shoes on, playing, their families were happy. And, 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 I, and I understood that they were not just happy because of the shoes, but they were more happy about what the shoes represented. And that was that someone believed in them, someone cared about them, and that they would have the shoes needed for the school uniform that was in, for the school year that was getting ready uh, to start. And I remember going home that evening uh, to the place I was staying on my vacation and talking to uh, my friend Alejo, who was actually trying to give me polo lessons of all things. And, uh, and I said, I told Alejo about the experience. And, uh, and, he, uh, and he said, um, you know, that they thought it was really great what they were doing. But he asked me a question. He said, Blake, um, what's going to happen for the next pair of shoes? Because you know, these volunteers, you know, two of them live in the UK. One's going back to the US. Who's going to give them their next pair? And, and that question I didn't have an answer for. And I remember going to bed that night thinking about you know, that, that question. And, 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 and the next morning is when I woke up and over a cup of coffee uh, and writing in my journal had the idea for Tom's. And this idea that instead of asking for donations or depending on charity to help keep these children in shoes, what about starting a business, a for-profit company, where every time we sell a pair of shoes, we'd give a pair away. And that small idea, uh, I took back to California, started selling shoes out of my apartment. Uh, and then, as the video said, we've now given over 35 million uh, shoes in the last nine years. Um, and thank you. And, 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 and I, I want to tell a quick story. I hope I have enough time. I already got a time card. Um, but I don't get this opportunity very much to talk about public health. And I think this is a really important story for me. And, for, and I, it's also a plea for the smart minds in here to help us with this. Is, um, about a year and a half after I started Tom's, I was, I was giving a talk, actually, at a local church. Um, and, and a woman came up to me afterwards and showed me these pictures 
of feet that were so grotesque and so deformed uh, that it blew my mind. It honestly looked like something you'd see in Ripley's, believe it or not. Um, these were human beings that had feet that looked like elephants. And, and she explained to me that in Ethiopia, there was a disease called podoconiosis. And basically, it was a silica in the soil that would get into the lymphatic system and totally destroy the, the feet from the legs down. And the, the women and children and men that contracted this were totally shunned from society, uh, that many of them were locked up and hidden. Um, if there were women, many times they would commit suicide. And this was all happening because they didn't have the proper shoes and sanitation. And she pleaded with me to go to Ethiopia. Now, at this point, I had I'd never even you know, uh, you know, been anywhere near Ethiopia, but within a month, I went on a plane and I saw this firsthand. And I must say, I thought I was going to go into a clinic and see like four cases, five cases. But the first time I walked into a, a podoconiosis clinic in Ethiopia, I saw hundreds and hundreds of people with this disease. And, and I couldn't believe it. And that's when I knew, a year and a half later, that I was getting into public health. And that, you know, and that, and that shoes not only could help children go to school, but they could present, prevent diseases like podoconiosis or hookworm, which we use our shoes to prevent a lot in Central America. And since then, we found that there are very simple treatments that can take someone who has podoconiosis and get their feet back to normal, in, in, as well as the prevention. So, you know, my wife and I and our foundation are, are, are investing heavily in this and this podoconiosis clinics, as well as um, continuing to provide shoes in Ethiopia and other places where our shoes uh, can prevent um, this type of disease. So, so while you might not immediately think of, of footwear as a, as a preventer of disease, uh, it very much is so in, in many parts of the world. Uh, and, and as the video has shown, you know, we have been so excited about using the one-for-one -one model uh, to address other needs in the world, whether it's maternal health, which we just recently started doing with the safe birth kits and the training of birth attendants through the sale of bags, uh, to our eye care, uh, cataract surgeries, et cetera. So it has been an incredible blessing for us to be able to take this one-for-one -one model from shoes and to be able to help in, in so many other ways. So it really is an honor to, to, take, to accept this award uh, and to be recognized by the public health community um, in something that is so passionate, that we are so passionate about, whether we knew we were getting into that uh, nine years ago or not. And so I'll just close with saying that, you know, the, the simple mission of Tom's is to use business to improve lives. That is what we do and that is what we talk a lot about. Uh, how we do it is our one-for-one -one model. Every time we sell a product, it, is, it comes with a promise that when you buy that product, it will be used to help someone in need. But why we do it? And the why is, is, is really simple. We simply care about one another. And I think that everyone in the room here, that's exactly why you're studying public health or you're engaged in public health. It's why Chelsea and the Clinton Foundation has so much done so much. It's a real simple desire to care for one another. And so I, I accept this award today from you know, everyone at Tom's who worked so hard, otherwise I wouldn't be standing up here, but also on behalf of everyone that just simply cares about one another. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Blake. Um, what you do is public health. Uh, so thank you for, for, for this comments. Uh, what, what an amazing and remarkable story. And to show that everything in life is interconnected, I remember the 2008 
Clinton Global Initiative meeting where I uh, was honored by President Clinton with the um, Global Citizen, the Clinton Global Citizens Award. And that, at that meeting, I got my first pair of Tom's shoes because uh, <laughs> Tom's had been invited uh, in, in to the, to the uh, Clinton Global Initiative uh, precisely because of the fantastic example of what you've just heard. Um, it's been really a remarkable morning. Uh, we've been fortunate to have Chelsea Clinton and Blake Mykoski uh, talk with us today, share their enormous insights. Um, these are really remarkable individuals who have claimed the mantle of leadership for the next generation of global health champions. Uh, in dedicating themselves to this cause, they stand alongside so many esteemed individuals, including our own students, our own alumni, and our own faculty, uh, who are working for affordable, quality healthcare for all, for a life that enhances the opportunities of every human being, and for a global understanding that health is truly our only hope for a shared destiny. I thank you all of you for joining us today. I thank our two honored guests, and I hope we all go out of this room and out of the webcast that millions are, or thousands are, are, are following um, uh, with the inspiration that the next generation provides to all of us. Thank you very much. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.